it's very much what stand-up comedians do, right? Like stand-up comedians will take a joke that's not working and maybe just flip two words or or maybe just, you know, take a slight pause in between two words and it completely changes the feel of of the entire routine. And that's what I was doing with this one joke. And it wasn't even a joke that mattered. It was a throwaway that was meant to make the show look more off the cuff. You know your business can change people's lives, but you don't yet have the right words to inspire them to take action. Imagine the changes you will create in your business when you tap into the secrets of ethical influence and positive persuasion to not only better serve your clients, but also to supercharge your financial freedom. I'm your host, Jason Lynette, and welcome to the Hypnotic Language Hacks podcast. I help coaches and course creators just like you to close more premium sales. And no, this isn't about tricking or manipulating people. Not at all. It's about helping your prospects to appropriately sell themselves into your products or services. Please hit subscribe and get all the episodes now at jasonlinette.com. I'm Jason Lynette and welcome to Hypnotic Language Hacks. Now on this program, we kind of mix it up a bit where sometimes it's a moment where I'm teaching something specific that you can apply to your business. And as most people in this audience are in the online marketing space or even coaching, oftentimes I reach out of our shared communities and bring someone into this program as a conversation that I feel has a rather unique perspective that we can model and there's something to be attained by hearing their story. And my guest this week is, of all things, a magician. Michael Kent is actually someone who I go back with, I'd say, about eight or nine years. And in fact, I had forgotten the exact time frame that we met. And he reminds me in this conversation that you're about to listen to. Uh, I started part of my career as a stage hypnotist, going to schools, doing a motivational program. And one time we were booked at the same event. And I'd forgotten this. I had to leave early because my wife was in labor with our son. So driving six hours to get home and be there for the birth of my child, who's now eight years old, about to turn nine. Pretty good reason to leave early. So Michael Kent is a professional comedian and magician. He has toured 47 states. He's performed in 15 different countries. So he's performed all around the world for live audiences. He's also appeared on the hit television show, Penn & Teller, Fool Us. Head over to the show notes at jasonlinette.com for this episode. We'll be sure to put a YouTube link to that clip. And he's also the host of a live stream talk show that he calls Joke story trick. Now, on top of everything that he does, he recently started a program called The Internet Says It's True, which is a podcast that began as a 2020 pandemic project. At first, it was called Tell Me What to Google. And as it gathered an audience, as people began to listen, that's when he rightfully decided to continue it as an ongoing project. Now, before you listen to this conversation, let me highlight some of the takeaways to listen for inside of this. One of the reasons I invited Michael on to this program is the whole conversation around specificity of words. And even though very clearly the example we're going to spend some time addressing in his program to consistently let a funny moment occur as if it was spontaneous nearly every single time. When you hear that level of specificity and even attention to detail, it's going to help you to think a bit differently about the care that we might put into the headline of a website, the subject line of an email. There is power in the specificity and, of course, that attention to detail. On top of that, a little bit of a personal conversation around anxiety and how it relates to being a business owner, someone who travels quite a bit, time away from home, and how we can find in our lives these moments of, let's call them meditative practices, moments that are not necessarily formal meditation, but to do things of which we find meditative qualities out of, to then ground ourselves, create some healthy routines, and start to change that internal dialogue of even how we communicate with ourselves. I'll tell you my favorite moment of this conversation, stick through toward the end, because there's this beautiful metaphor of a hobby of Michael's that he's picked up. And the takeaway, here's the preview, is that it's not hard. It just takes time. 
And think about something perhaps in your personal life or maybe even in your business that might have been stalling, might be something that you've perceived to be difficult, and what would happen for you differently? If instead you looked at it and gave it the statement, well, it's not hard. It just takes time. Yeah, I say this as somebody, one of the other podcasts that I host, it's been going out for now almost eight years, and there's more than 350 episodes. And the anecdote is, here's a friend of mine who at one point around episode 210 looked at me and goes, oh, you're serious about this. <laughs> so there are things that we do. And here's a friend of mine that's written 25 plus books, and he'd likely agree. It's not hard it just takes time. So whatever you might be struggling with right now in the growth of your business, what would happen differently for you by adopting and adapting to that mindset and stepping into that? You don't necessarily have to believe it's true, but what would happen if you operated as if it were true? There's a lot of cool information that Michael shares in this conversation. This is podcast episode number 47. So if you head over to jasonlinette.com forward slash That'll bring you over to the show notes of this episode. Uh, check out a few videos. Check out his website and his podcast as well. I'd also encourage you, you're going to hear this again on the outro of this program. But at the end of this program, I give an invite to a private Facebook community that I run. It's the Business Influence and Persuasion Group for for coaches and course creators. Though when you go to that link that's mentioned at the end, it's Join Influence Group. Dot com as part of this conversation is about the power of the specificity of words and even timing. When you join that group, I actually give you free access to a small training called 11 Secret Words That Sell. And quick anecdote would be, here's someone who just simply watched that training, changed the subject line of their emails that they would use for a follow-up client call. Someone had called them, they spoke, maybe they didn't book right away by just injecting the right words at the right time, their retention rate of people who had kind of left going, well, let me think about it, let me talk to my spouse, and normally would have faded away. One simple shift of language had those people re-engaging, and that's a free training you can pick up at joininfluencegroup.com. So here we go. This is the Hypnotic Language Hacks podcast, and get ready to meet Michael Kent. Before we get started today, remember this quick website, jasoninfluence.com. Because if you want to easily grab people's attention, naturally build authority, and organically have your prospects wanting more from you, even before you make an offer, I've created a step-by-step -step strategy to help you to do just that. I call it the Video Influence System. And this is your opportunity right now to discover my highly effective, entirely free, on-demand workshop at jasoninfluence.com. It's specifically for coaches and course creators who want to deliver premium value to their clients to receive premium value in return. So if you want a proven framework to boost your confidence and deliver value that inspires people to take action with you, get your free Influence Masterclass online right now at jasoninfluence.com. Now I'm here with Michael Kent. And Michael, for those that don't yet know you, could you briefly introduce yourself? I'm a comedian and a magician, and as of uh, September 6th of 2020, I'm a podcaster as well. So, uh, But comedy and magic has been the thing that's been my bread and butter for 17 years now. I've been touring. It's taken me to 47 states, probably, uh, I think, 15 countries now, and it's been the thing that's paid my bills. So uh, I tell people what I do is like a stand-up comedian performing magic. Yeah, awesome. And you and I go back to an event, I forget, about maybe 10 years ago, where we kind of worked in tandem at a school in West Virginia, where we both did an assembly, we both did an evening performance. I think at one point, it was deemed as a competition, but I think then all three of us then abandoned that theme. <laughs> hypnotist. Um, I remember that evening well, because I have several stories from that day. Uh, one of those stories is that you had to rush home to for the birth of one of your children. Yes. Uh, yes. Which 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 happened that evening, I believe. But um, <clears throat> that's the show where I have this thing in my act that's a running gag. Uh, I sort of mess up something early in the act. And this was for the daytime show. So these were high school students in the auditorium at the end of the school day. And it was very well, like we had planned out how much we each did like 35 minutes or something. And I'm looking at the clock and everything's great because at the end of my act, 
I reveal that this thing that they've been looking at for the whole show isn't really a mistake. And I reveal it that it's actually a revelation of this card that's been chosen throughout. And as I was getting into that, I looked at my watch and I was just on time. And then I see these students coming on stage and they take the microphone from me and tell me that they, we've run out of time and that's the end of the show. And I said, no, I just have one more minute. I remember that. Yeah. Because I know that the end of my act has to reveal, it makes the whole act have meaning. And they said, no. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, I'm sure I'm, I'm on time. And what had happened, I guess, was that this kid who was about to audition for uh, America's Got Talent as a dancer who had graduated from this high school like the year before had showed up and convinced the principal that he was the big secret closing to the act. And she said, he or she, I don't know, said, yes, that you are the big. And they said, well, we need to get Michael off stage so he can do this. And so I turn around and they are carrying my props off stage <laughs> as, as I'm like my mouth is agape and I never got to finish the show. So this audience thought that not only did I mess up one of the first tricks, but that I kept referring to it through my entire performance. Um, and then the, the evening show started with one of them knocking over my table and all of my props going throughout the show. So I remember that day very well. Yes. And, and <laughs> the, the moment with the juggler um, from my theater career working backstage production, we had a moment with a juggler and it was not comfortable when the director said that thing you do where you pretend to drop them and then you pretend to drop them, then you pretend to drop them. You know, it's only really funny if you actually succeed at juggling at the end. <laughs> and by the time the show launched, I think we had replaced the juggler. Uh, I'm always fascinated by the origin story. So yeah. I'm assuming, you know, as part of my story too, what was kind of that entry point into magic for you? Disney World, uh, Main Street, USA at Disney yeah. World what is now called the, oh my gosh, I know the name of it and it just completely, your, your listeners are saying, it's the thing. Um, it, it's on the, the Emporium, I believe is the name of the store now. It's on the left side as you're walking into Main Street USA in, in Florida. And it used to be a magic counter, a magic shop. Yeah. And that was my very first experience seeing magic in real life. I had seen Doug Henning on TV and I was six years old and I bought a couple little cardboard illusions, some like Kuma tubes and a phantom tube. These were built out of cardboard made by Royal Magic. I still have some of them, I believe. And I was a magician then. Uh, that was the thing. And anytime my parents went out of town, if they would, like went on a vacation and left my brother and I with, with our grandparents, they would visit a magic shop just for my benefit and bring me home a magic trick, Yeah, which, which was super cool. They really encouraged it, supported it. And it was that thing that that helped me as a young nerdy kid associate with my peers because I was never growing up. I was like the nerd. I was never the popular kid. I wasn't necessary. I didn't have those social skills. And it helped me have sort of this identity that, that my friends could use to associate with me. It was that and I was a drummer. And those were my two. These things that I did were my identity, not necessarily who I was. Mm -hmm which later I would spend years of therapy talking about. Uh, now I would ask you, and uh, this is where we switch seats for a moment and go, okay, now work on me. Because uh, I was right there with you that here was the moment in high school where it was like, that's the card man. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, that, that's right. Uh, though, what would you say, you know, to kind of look at it now, what would you say the magic kind of served the benefit of in terms of, you know, becoming more sociable by having this conduit to, you know, impress upon people, open up a conversation? So, yeah, and it was also a little bit of self-validation and ego, um, but but very much that first thing, self-validation. Um, you know, for a large part of my life, I felt like the thing that I had to offer other people, well, and that's, first of all, you know, you have this idea that you have to have something to offer people. <laughs> and I felt like that thing for me was I want them to leave this interaction thinking about me and talking about me and yeah. um and i want you know and i also there was so there was an ego thing i wanted to be i wasn't i didn't see myself as funny or cool or hip or anything like that so magic was the thing that i did for you know in, in place of of just being myself and the interesting thing about this jason is that when i met my wife we went on our first date and i tried to show her magic on our first date i remember we were sitting in the car we had gotten to, I can't remember what show, we were going to a show and we were there early. We we're sitting in the car and I tried to show her magic and she looked at me and she goes, I know what you're doing and it's not going to work on me. 
And it was a light bulb moment. It was like, oh, oh my God, you want to just know me? Like I had mm-hmm. spent the last five years of college <laughs> substituting magic for, for personality and or, or expressing my personality through being a go, magician. Yeah. Uh, and, and that really attracted to me to her. And, and uh, to this day, she's not thrilled about magic. She's just not a huge fan of it. Which I love because it's a leave work at work thing, and and my, our relationship has nothing to do with her being a fan of mine, um, which I think is really good for anyone who's a performer. But there, there's a through line here, and it's a friend of mine, Scott Sandlin, who is actually, I believe, number episode number twenty in this series, uh, and we'll both be at conferences sometimes, and people will say to either one of us, "This is how we first, I think, bonded." Um, hey, where's your wife and kids? Oh, uh, they don't come to these events, and that's why we're happily married. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But that's an important point about drawing that line, because I know there's a balance, you know, in your lifestyle in terms of travel that, correct me, colleges are still a part, a large part of what you do? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there was- you tend to manage that, that balance of here's the time on travel versus now here's the time at home? So I've been- performing in colleges for 17 years, and I did not figure this out until the last maybe five or six years. Um, It was always, they were always butting heads and competing with each other. Really, really difficult. It felt like I would go and I would have my show business life and my real life. And it still is that way to any entertainer, and, and for me certainly as well. But I figured out this thing that I do. So I sat next to this is a this is a, a side road real quick. I sat next to the late comedian Ralphie May on a flight. Oh, wow. once, yeah, and we talked the entire time about relationships, and he was talking about why. And at this point, he was married. He would later get divorced, but he was he was married at this point, and he was talking about how the reason why show business relationships don't work because you go on the road and you perform for this audience, and they love you, they adore you. And of course they do. You, they know you for one hour, and it's your best hour. It's your hour that you've been rehearsing for a decade. And of course, it'd be weird if they didn't love you and adore you and show you admiration. And you do that night after night and city after city, and you get this fake idea of who you are. And then you go home to the person who knows you, and she's like, you know, pick your dirty underwear up off the floor. Mm-hmm. Like it's because she knows the real you, you know, go, okay, take, okay. I know you're great. Go, go take out the trash. Okay. I understand. You know, people loved you. Great. And it's, you, you start comparing, you say, you have this idea that this person should be my biggest fan, but they're not. It's, and, and, uh, they don't have that relationship with you because they know all of you, which is a more realistic relationship in, in the first place. So what I did to answer your question at the end of every show, no matter what I have a, routine. I love routines. Um, So when I'm tearing down the show after the last audience guest has left, right? So I've done merch, I've done meet and greet, whatever. I text my wife tearing down now. And she knows what that means. She knows that that means it's going to be about 40 minutes to an hour that I'm going to be doing that and not paying attention to anything else, just tearing down, getting the cases. And my focus at that point is getting everything to where it belongs so I can load out and get into my car. I sit in my rental car outside of the venue. I don't put in my directions to the hotel. I don't do anything. I sit in my rental car and I call her and we talk. Not about my show, not about my day. We talk about her day. We talk about what she's up to. We talk, and, and it is the coolest buffer between that fake world of applause, standing ovations and people that you don't know paying attention to you and adding you on Instagram or whatever else to real life. Like, oh, that's right. You had um, you had a doctor appointment today. How'd that go? You know, like real life stuff comes back into my life and it makes me when I get to the hotel, I don't feel as lonely. I don't feel as disconnected. And I swear this one thing has saved my marriage. This little buffer call, I call it. I just it's it's a it's a it's a pulling me back into the things that matter call. I love that. And this is one of those things that I'm often looking for in these conversations as to what are those rituals? What are those transitions? I had a friend who about a dozen years ago, you know, was talking about, now he's not, he, he's, te- I would say he's a performer. He's more speaker, but he kind of fits into a similar world at times. And he was the one who gave me the advice uh, after your presentation, when you're driving home, don't listen to the radio. He goes, take that time just to kind of decompress take that time just to kind of detach 
And it's where even in the one-to-one, you know, kind of consultative work that I did for a bunch of years, the power of the phrase in terms of a personal change, as you walk out that door, because, well, if we were addressing a habit or a behavior, the change never occurred in the room, the change would occur in their real life. So on one side, the use of the phrase, as you walk out that door, was signaling this is when the change occurs. I, I have to be honest and say that phrase was also there for me. Interesting. So Because in- it's about leaving behind that experience. And on one side, maybe here's the next client. And starting from that fresh perspective. And also at the end of the day, going home and actually being home as opposed to keeping that routine running. Yeah, I, I am one of these people that, um, so I, I'm a big fan of meditation and uh, I appreciate silence in that moment. But then after that, throughout my day, I am constantly throwing audio into my ears, constantly. Yeah. And so the idea of doing a performance and then getting in my car and driving in silence is just sounds so frightening to me because my anxiety would kick in in replaying everything that just happened in that show. If there was one hiccup, even if it was something like a late sound cue, mm-hmm. I would replay that in my show. That That's the type of thing, man, um, that buffer call that I was talking about, it sort of gets me out of that thinking about the show thing. If I want to think about the show, I go back, I, I get every show on video. Mm-hmm. So I can go back and watch the video. If I If I get into the hotel that night and I'm like, there was a line I said that didn't work tonight, or or there was something I said that's not that that got an extra laugh. Then I can go back and I can watch that. But the the thing about live performance is that there's a very zen impermanence to it that's that's beautiful. Like you do a show for these people, it exists in that moment, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes have trouble grasping that idea. I want the I want that to last longer. That moment feels so good. You want to extend it into, you know, and talk about it afterward. And and I I think that it's a very healthy thing to have the mindset while you're doing the show that this is just for tonight. This happens now between you and I in this room, you know, me and these 200 people sharing this moment, and then it's gone forever. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very healthy thing to to experience that way. And it keeps me from anxiety, which is something I suffer with now you just did one of my favorite things by the way what's that which is that you heard my strategy and you went i don't do it that way because and you had you had the reason and it's the benefit of again uh one of the moments that i think i had the biggest respect for you i don't think i've ever told you the story uh was that i saw you put out this product specifically for magicians about how to handle a microphone Yes. And I'm sure that's something that other people maybe on the surface level could have just gone. How could you give a whole lecture on that? And yet here's all the specificity that really goes into that. And this is part of the mindset of this program of really diving into our strategies, being able to define for ourselves. This is why it works for me. I'm sure we're going to get around to language applied to performance as well as humor. But to get into the specificity of something that deeply, which does two things. One, it conveys a layer of confidence to the audience, but it also conveys a level of confidence back into yourself that you know how you're doing it, why you're doing it, and you know how to troubleshoot on the fly if something suddenly is different. Yeah, I mean, handling a microphone, a handheld microphone, seems like minutia, but it's not. Um, There is a lot to it. And not that there's anything wrong with discussing minutia ad nauseum. I love minutia. Yeah. Uh, I once had a 20-minute conversation with like seven of my best friends in a hotel room about the finger posture we each use when giving, when flipping someone the bird. Um, <laughs> and, it was, and it was a conversation that, you know, 10 years later, I still think about often because each of us not only had a different hand posture when we did it, but a reason for that. And it, it reflected our personalities. And it was one of those conversations where like you dig into the minutia. But but holding a microphone, holding a handheld microphone, or you, I should say using a handheld microphone is much more than just holding a microphone in front of your mouth. And everyone's heard, okay, don't hold it this way, don't talk into it this way, don't blow in it, all these things. But as a performer, and specifically as a magic performer, there are a lot of things that people don't realize uh, uh, using a microphone, a handheld microphone can give you. Mm-hmm. And they feel like the idea of holding a microphone sort of um, keeps them from feeling free. 
And in my experience, it makes me feel more free on stage. There's a lot more I can do with a handheld microphone. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, give away the, the, the whole thing here, but essentially, A, it's going to sound better. And that is number one for me. Yes. Because if there's something that takes me out of watching a live performer quicker than anything else, it's bad microphones. And even the best headset countryman E6 microphone, I'm hearing you breathe. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing, um, you know, it has to be, it's a tiny, tiny little diaphragm that's that's reflecting that sound into the coil and, and, and you know, into the, the system. And it has to be cranked. And so I'm hearing every breath you take and people don't realize they make mouth noises and all these little things. And not only that, but there's a lot that I talk about in the lecture about directing attention of the audience. Yes. And everyone has been conditioned throughout their whole life to know that when someone holds a microphone up to their mouth, they're about to say something that you're about to hear. You know, banquets, even if you're not an entertainer or you're not, you don't go to shows, you know that when someone holds a microphone up, you know, heck, elementary school, when the principal holds up the microphone, you're listening, whatever it is. So I use it to direct attention, meaning if I want to create a space at the end of a statement, I can pull that microphone away from my mouth and the audience knows it's time to laugh or the audience knows that I'm putting a button or, or making a point by just pulling the microphone away from my mouth and giving a look. There are little subtle things that I do, and I talk about these in the lecture. Um, one of the other things is if you are someone who brings people on stage and talks to them, having a handheld mic allows you to create the rhythm of that interview. So a lot of performers who use handheld mics or lapel mics, they might have a secondary micro. Well, first of all, a lot of performers who bring people on stage don't allow their audience member to talk into a microphone, which is a huge mistake. Yes. Some of the best gold that comes from, you know, this interaction comes from the things that they say, not what you say. So they might bring a secondary microphone on stage. Well, you can't control when they start and stop that sentence. You know, they might just go on and on and on, or they might not say anything at all. They might not know when to start talking. But if I have a microphone and can start doing this, this, uh, you know, tennis match back and forth of a, of a yeah, microphone. Say especially for something of a comedy nature, you're establishing a rhythm and now there's an expectation as to what's about to happen. Yeah. It, it's so, it's so helpful. It's so helpful. Yeah. And I actually include video, um, examples of me doing this in the in the the lecture anyway it's called microphone management for magicians and it's something that's been really successful for me um it's not what i do for a living i don't lecture other magicians but it's <laughs> something that i had spent 10 years really being passionate about using a handheld microphone and thought that i had something to give so i came up with this product did a live lecture and well, that theme of directing focus, there, there's two things I'd love to kind of have a chat around. One, in terms of here's the world stopping last year and everything that happened in terms of how you made some pivots inside of what you did, which now, of course, live performances are rapidly coming back. Before we get to that, though, doing one of your signature performances on television with Penn and Teller Fool Us, uh, did you, in the, the context of this, could you briefly describe that that magic I was, moment i was asked asked to be on penn and teller uh for season two and i was in japan at the time performing i couldn't do it um they asked me to come on season three and i and they said what would you do i pitched them my chicken trick which is 100 percent original unique trick that may have been able to fool them but two weeks before the taping they asked me to do the multiplying bottles which is a trick that was made famous in the 1950s in england it is not unique or original it's not going to fool Penn and Teller and we all knew that but they wanted it on the show and I said of course you guys know your show better than I do and I'm glad I did I went on the show and did the routine that I've done more than anything else in my life on the show so I didn't stress out when I got down to Las Vegas and all these magicians were freaking out because they're doing something for the first time I was like I'll be at the bar guys I don't don't have to (laughs) worry about this at all uh I in fact there are, are two magician consultants that work on the show um I don't know if you'd call them consultants. They're probably more like producers uh, who are there to help you construct your routine for television. If there's something that needs to change, they'll look at it ahead of time. Also, you have to tell your secrets to that person in case there is a dispute. If Penn and Teller say this is how you did it and you say, no, it's not, there's a third party that's impartial that knows how it's done. 
So anyway, I did this for Michael Close, a very famous magician uh, who was working on the show. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, you've done that a lot. <laughs> that was the routine. <laughs> and the only note for me he had was do it 10%, 10 slower because uh, the TV, it will make it play a little bit too fast. And I did it 10% slower. I remember consciously thinking, slow it down because it's mm -hmm. a very fast routine. And when you watch the video, it does not look like I slowed it down at all. So they, they were very right about that. It was a fantastic experience. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Um, and uh, it was interesting because, you know, I did a trick on the show that's not going to fool Penn and Teller. And, every, and I knew and they knew I wasn't going to fool Penn and Teller. So if you look at the YouTube comments, every other one is, why would you do this trick on this show? And, you know, people who don't understand that the show is a, about a lot more than just fooling Penn and Teller. It's about. Yes. No, I was going to say, it's a moment where you were given this great opportunity. And from my perspective, it was that let me take something that I knew I know I do best. And like you said, other people who are doing something for the first time ever, because, yes, this is the conversation for people who do a TED talk that, yes, there's an audience in the room, but there's a huger audience around the world who's going to see it after the fact. And here came, I'm curious to hear what kind of effect has that had upon your career? Because now here's one of those resume points. Yeah, the credit is great. I mean, it's great to have that credit, uh, the logo. It all looks great. Um, it sounds great when I'm being introduced. Um, people's eyes light up when you tell them you're on the show. It's fantastic. It did lead to more business. I don't know how much more business. It wasn't anything astronomical. It wasn't like, a, you know, this was my big break or anything like that. Right. It definitely, you know, it was just one piece of cable television for, you know, an audience of 1.5 million. Uh, I think the YouTube video has like 1.2 or 1.3 million views. Um, so it's not like going on America's Got Talent where your viewing audience is upwards of, of 15 million. It's not the same. But it's more, it's probably the, the most value was A, in the reel, in, in getting that amazing footage, and B, in the credit and being able to say I was on this show and, and I had this experience. And it's a little bit of um, legitimacy, which is beautiful. But the experience was, was so, much, so much fun. I mean, it was just the opposite of every other TV gig I've ever done in that not only were you treated by the production like the, the the directors, the producers, everyone with such reverence, but by the crew, by the production crew, the camera people, the, the lighting people, the makeup, everyone treats the talent on that show so well to the point where you know, and I've, I've done, you know, enough like little TV commercials and stuff to know that that is not the norm. Mm -hmm. You know that they have been instructed to treat these people with with value and with worth. And it makes that experience, which is very scary for a lot of people, it makes that experience so much easier. Well, there's a lot to unpack from that, especially of building the environment for people to succeed, as well as, again, leaning into, here's an opportunity, let me share something great. So let, let's kind of bring the conversation then to this world of launching a podcast last year. And here's a moment where sort of the lifeblood of a lot of what you did suddenly wasn't there. Um, what were some of those transitions that you made in terms of whether it's performance or launching another segment of what you do? Tell us tell us more about that. Like many people, last March and April of, of 2020, uh, I converted to being able to, to work virtually. I built a studio, a, a you know professional quality production studio in my basement, and really focused on quality of production, lighting, sound, um, really wanted a product that I was I was proud of. So I had this gear and I decided, I, I saw a lot of other magicians doing magic on Facebook for like live streaming magic. And I wanted to live stream something to my fans, but I didn't want to do magic because that's what I'm charging people for. Why would I do on Facebook for free what I'm, you know, what's, what is the, the service that I'm selling? So I decided to do a weekly talk show called Joke Story Trick. I did that for 45 weeks. Every Tuesday night live, I did that. And I had celebrity guests on. I had a sitting US Congress person. I had a former Navy SEAL. I had professional wrestlers. And it, it was really, really good, especially in the summer of 2020. You know, we were getting like a thousand people watching. But then when we got to that winter, people stopped watching, virtual fatigue, everything else. And the live aspect really is depressing when no one watches. It's really hard to do a live show when no one's watching. 
And I decided at that point, I had the gear, I wanted to do a podcast for a long time, and it was it was the time to come up with an idea for a podcast. I knew I didn't want it to have anything to do with magic or my profession at all, because I wanted it to be something else. I wanted it to, to be able to be a, live in a separate compartment in my brain so that if I got burnout from doing a ton of shows, I could still have this other thing that I could switch to. Uh, and so I created this podcast. Now, I am a heavy podcast listener. I listen to, I would say I probably listen to at least 10 podcasts a day, uh, maybe more than that. Wow, yeah. Uh, and I have been, I was an early adopter of podcasts as well. I've been listening to podcasts since, you know, they were named after the iPod. Like it was, it's been a, <laughs> it's been a, a really long thing for me. But I created this thing called The Internet Says It's True. And the idea is that I'm taking these stories from history, bizarre explanations of origins of why this is called this thing or or why we do this thing, or sometimes it's just an obscure story from history. And the theme is that these are all things that if someone told them to you, you would say there's no way that's true. And then you Google it and holy crap, this is true. Uh, that's what every week is. It was originally called Tell Me What to Google. That was the first name. I remember of the that, yeah. Yeah, Tell Me What to Google. And uh, I changed it not for any uh, litigious purposes. Like I, I wasn't sued or I didn't get a cease and desist, which is what people assume. The problem was that when you have a product with Google in the name, it's impossible to Google. Yes. <laughs> Your SEO <laughs> is horrible. So, it's you know, <laughs> if you are a, uh, you know, a professional speaker and you're like, you know, the Google master, you're never going to be found, never yeah. going to be found. Uh, because Google we wants need to go back to the reference of office space and the characters whose name was Michael Bolton. It's yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why should I change my name? He's the one that sucks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I changed it to the Internet Says It's True, which is a title that my friend Jonathan Burns came up with. And uh, since then got put onto the NPR network through our my local member station. Uh, oh, nice. And the beauty in that is that now instead of a couple hundred people listening, there are a few thousand people listening every week which has really helped me grow the show in terms of sponsors and in terms of Patreon and everything like that. Every show is about 40 minutes, 35 to 40 minutes long. And every show has a guest that's usually, and they're not necessarily celebrity guests. Sometimes they're friends of mine. Sometimes they're com like local comedians that I know. And the whole point is I bring them on and we do a quick quiz over that topic to see if they knew any of this stuff. And it's, an, it's a way that I add additional information into the episode that maybe didn't fit in. So last week's episode was about the fact that Genghis Khan lived in, so he died in like 1227. He didn't want anyone to know where he was buried. So he had an entire army kill anyone that saw his funeral procession. And then he had a different army come in and kill those people. And then they had a thousand horses come in and trample the area. He was, that was the, the, the common practice in his tribe was that you have to have a secret burial place. And he went to such lengths that he murdered anyone who saw the funeral. Uh, so it, it, that, that was the episode. And this week we're talking about the way that Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and, and jailed political uh, opponents in 1861. So wow, it, wow. it's all over the place, the, the show is. But it's the, the common theme is these are things that you didn't know that are true. And the whole idea is that like, I love that I'm 42 years old and I'm still learning new stuff every day. I love it. That That's that beauty of this era that we're in as to here's an idea and to then put it out there and see there's an audience for it. And suddenly now it's creating this community that's around it. And uh, one of the things I wanted to chat with you about here was, again, a program called Hypnotic Language Hacks, the power of words, the power of how the influence becomes different by changing a few words that when I first uh, knew of you, uh, and I'm curious if this is still in the branding or if it's gone away, it was comedian, magician, smartass? It's still it, yeah. Comic, still it, yes. <laughs> smartass, yeah. Yeah. So we'll stick with comedian and magician, I guess, for these examples. I'm sure we'll get into some uh, smartassery as uh, a fellow as well, sure. which would be, can you think of a time where just the specificity of words, the changing out of some of the language took something of a magical effect and completely shifted it. And even we'll yeah. dip into comedy, I'm sure too. 
Sure. Well, there there was a bit. So I do a bit with a rubber chicken that's like eleven minutes of my show, which I'm currently I'm currently trying to squeeze. Which, down by the way, the right, that right there is the favorite sentence I've heard all month. By the way, so <laughs> I do a bit with that. a chicken that's eleven minutes long. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and and right now, it. it's beautiful. Oh, it's 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 long, but it's you know it's extended into this whole segment of the show, and I'm trying to squeeze it down to five minutes right now for for a television project. But um, the 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 trick used to be a card trick and i used to have this line where i'd have someone on stage holding a rubber chicken and i'm spreading out the deck of cards in front of them and i want them to to take the the chicken and then go across the cards with the beak of the chicken until the chicken will squawk when it gets to the right card right like the chicken's going to find the card by squawking when it its head is over the right card and the phrase that i used one night was rub the chicken's beak over the cards. But I, the person that I had on stage didn't wait for the end of the sentence. And so when they heard rub the chicken's beak, they started rubbing the chicken's beak like a, like a magic lamp, like a genie's gonna pop out of a rubber chicken. And it got the biggest laugh. And I spent the next three weeks trying to get that to happen again. And I couldn't make it happen. I was putting in a gap. I was saying, rub the chicken's beak, over the cards and they were just still doing it the way that you know i had originally intended for them to do where they're using the chicken you know like a finger to pick a card so i i played with it and i played with it and i played with it and then i remembered this book i read who uh, it's a it's a performer who you and i uh both are familiar with jamie kurtz and he no longer performs but he has a book called leading with your head and it's all about misdirection gary kurtz oh sorry gary kurtz yeah, ja yeah. jamie kurtz is a local <laughs> is a is a um a local magician I used to get them confused all the time. Gary Kurtz, leading with your head. Gary no, no longer performs, but he has written some of the best work for um, cards and, and, and things like that. But this was about misdirection and the idea about um, where the misdirection starts, how to create anchor points with the misdirection. And so what I realized I could do was, number one, I said the person's name in the sentence, the beginning of the sentence, and that got them to look me in the eyes. So and it was it's funny how this became so systematic and it, it's so scientific and it worked. So I would say, all right, Jason, rub the chicken's beak. And, and what I would do at that point is look at the chicken's beak with my eyes. So I'm creating the anchor point by saying their name. They look at my eyes. Now they're going to look where I look. So they follow my gaze. I say, you know, rub the chicken's beak. over, And I didn't even have to put a big pause in there. I could say, Jason, rub the chicken's beak over the cards, and they would start rubbing the chicken's beak as soon as I said that. And it, so I got it to be able to work every time. And every time then I could pretend like it was a mistake, like it was this this thing that just happened spontaneously tonight and it's never happened before, and I'm surprised by it. It gave me that moment every time. And the chicken trick is no longer a card trick. It's a, it's a trick with money and um it, I miss that moment. I don't have that moment in the show. I should try to build it back using something else. But but uh, that was one of those things where I was like, oh, man, the power of just taking one sentence, looking at each beat of it, and trying to create an, an outcome with it. It's very much what stand-up comedians do, right? Like, stand-up comedians will take a joke that's not working and maybe just flip two words or or maybe just, you know, take a slight pause in between two words and it completely changes the feel of of the entire routine and that's what i was doing with this one joke and it wasn't even a joke that mattered it was a throwaway that was meant to make the show look more off the cuff the beauty of that is again the testing of it the specificity of it and you know i i have moments like that in mind i heard i forget if it was an interview and this is like the reference of a reference of a reference of it was Michael Ian Black talking about listening to a George Carlin routine about a plane having to land over a hedge, like over, over a bush. And it's okay. like the, the levels of specificity. Yeah. And this got into my head as I was working on a website. And every step of a website sells the next step of the website. The headline sells the next step of scroll down the image on the video sells the click of actually watch this the first 10 seconds and you know so often people get into this frustration in business as to well i put this thing out there no one watched it 
And it's to take that time and kind of review what actually is working. What does this tell the story of? And yes, this is the lesson we can find from rubbing the chicken's beak. And I love every bit of it. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it's the, the, the chicken is the genie or is the bottle and the lesson is the genie, right? The, the, in any case, uh, yes. yeah, I, I, you know, in that, in that example, the hedge may have been 15 other words, you know, it may have been a tree, it may have been a bush until mm -hmm. you find that right word of what works, what, what exactly is, I, I love this type of thing, you know, and, and you, you had mentioned something a minute ago, you know, people create a product and then can't get people to pay attention to it or whatever. And I used to work in marketing. That was my job out of college. I was a marketing director before um, a magician. I still do marketing consulting, but I, the number one mistake in marketing is creating a product and then trying to find someone who wants it. You know, that's the, that's the thing that happens to most people most often is here's this thing who, who needs this, who wants this. The, the real, the best way to do something in terms of marketing a product is figure out what people need and then create that thing. You know, I see magicians struggling over being heard and they sound like crap on stage. They need a better way to use a microphone. So I'm going to create a method to make their show better. And I'm solving a problem that way. You know, right. and if you're solving problems with your products and your services, then it becomes very easy to sell. Because all you have to do is describe the problem. Someone says, oh, yeah, I do have that problem. Boom, sold. Absolutely. Before we bring this in for a close, there's the theme of flexibility that I kind of see in what you're doing now, that here's the time with the podcast. Here's the fact that, yes, there's some products that are out there for specific audiences, and here's the performance. Uh, you brought up themes of anxiety and mental health. What What has it created for you to have... Would you say it's a matter of options at this point? Would you say it's a matter of being able to kind of change up the rhythm? Options are nice, but it's sort of the opposite. It's sort of, uh, I like routine and I think routine is healthy. I think routine mm -hmm. is healthy for mental health. And when I was on the road 200 plus days a year performing, I was not mentally healthy. It's very difficult to be mentally healthy when you're on the road that much, when you're staying in a, a different hotel room every night, when you're doing something different every night. Uh, and so I think even in that instance, I would find routines anywhere I could. Routines in the hotel. I would do everything the same in the hotel every night. I would take this off of that and put this here and do that. And I think that being home more, I, I don't have kids, but I'm, I've been married for 15 years. I have two dogs. And I love being home. And I think I, it's so much healthier for me to be home more and to have more routine. I've always loved the idea that I can do this show business life and then fly home to this Midwestern suburban thing where you know it feels very, very opposite than that. But being able to come down in my basement every weekend, do it, do a show for the for for you know my computer, basically, record the show put it out on Monday morning and there are people that are listening to that and I'm still creating content that people can consume and in a way it's still entertainment it's still sort of show business I love it I love it uh, it feels less anxiety ridden um, my mental health is better because I know that it's it's more regular it's more regular and that's there are exceptions to that you know the last few weeks I've had shows on the weekends so I've had to record midweek and then put the show in the can and then, you know, schedule it for release and all that. But, but, uh, man, I don't have anything to do this weekend and it feels amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have any shows <laughs> till next week. So what are some of those, you say, personal routines? Cause I know this is something that anyone, here comes the generalization, anyone who's kind of in that public role, there's this aspect and you hinted at this at the beginning of we, we turn it on, then we have to turn it off. And, to be around people who, uh, yeah, that's great, but go clean the litter box. Yeah. <laughs> There's an interview at Podcast Junkie myself, the now classic uh, Mark Maron, Robin Williams interview of, you know, what was it like when you won the Oscar? What was a big deal that day? Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I go back to that phrase so often. W what are some of those personal routines if you notice that moment where, let's say, whether it's overwhelm, whether it's anxiety, some of the more personal stuff is kind of bubbling up what helps to ground you 
Uh, I lately have really embraced jigsaw puzzles. I don't know where this came from. Um, I never, I do know where it came from. My wife and I took a vacation uh, this summer and her mom likes jigsaw puzzles, always has some around. And we had a particularly stressful vacation because we were worried about some family health issues. And I spent a lot of time at the at the beach house, at her folks' house, doing jigsaw puzzles. And so I came home, I said, I wanna do that while I sit and watch TV. So if I'm watching TV, so now I just, I'm like buying jigsaw puzzles randomly whenever I see one I like. And it's really nice because it's a mindful exercise for me. It's It's something that it's meditative, it's repetitive. And the thing about a jigsaw puzzle is that it's not difficult. It just takes time. It doesn't take brain power, it takes time. And I like that there is a definite ending that will be there if I put in the time. It's like Legos or building a scale, a model airplane or something like that, where it just takes doing it. And it's not about how good you do it or how bad you do it. It's enjoyable to go through the process. It's enjoyable to, it feels constructive, it feels productive, but it's mindful and it's repetitive. And I, I really have enjoyed that. But I also enjoy getting up in the morning, feeding the dogs and drinking a coffee while I listen to last night's Rachel Maddow or whatever yeah. podcast I'm listening to. You know what I mean? Like I, I enjoy routines, like like repetitive routines. Um, when I get to the hotel room, when I'm when I am on the road, the very first thing I do, I kick off my shoes, I unplug the alarm clock, I take everything that's on the nightstand and put it inside the drawer in the nightstand. And the reason I do that is because I know that way when I get up in the morning, which is often really early to catch a flight or to get in the car, everything that I grab on that nightstand is mine. Mm -hmm. So I know, you know, either throw it in the bag or throw it in my pockets or whatever it is. So, yeah. It's not difficult, it just takes time. There's so much to pull from that phrase. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, before we wrap this up, how can people get in contact with you? How can they find out more? Well, my website is Michael Kent Live. Michael Kent Live. Uh, it's Kent like Clark Kent like Superman and Michael is A-E-L. Um, despite what uh, people misspell all the time, it's Michael Kent Live. <laughs> and you can find my podcast from there or just go to The Internet Says It's True. It's available on the NPR network or it's on all the podcast platforms. You can listen wherever you want. Um, and we come out with a new show every Monday morning. Um, so it's The Internet Says It's True. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining on me and really opening up and sharing these insights. Knowing that the audience for this program are people often in the coaching space, the online marketing space. As we wrap this up, any final thoughts for the listeners out there? I have a, a something that I always leave people with uh, when, when you're trying to do something new. And it's what I did when I first started the podcast. It's what I did when I needed to switch to a virtual show. If you want to do something that you're not currently doing, find someone who is doing it and ask them questions and never be afraid to do that. That's what I did for every piece of success that I've ever had in my life. It only happened because I found someone who was already doing something similar and asked them questions. You've been listening to the Hypnotic Language Hacks podcast with Jason Lynette. And hey, let's hang out. We have an incredible free community online with weekly live training events that I'd love for you to join. Your free private pass is available right now at joininfluencegroup.com. If you want exclusive access to a thriving community ready to help your business grow, this is the place for you because every week you will be surrounded by coaches and course creators at the top of their game, leveling up their success with hypnotic influence for business. Join us today at joininfluencegroup.com.